Welcome to our podcast. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation, where I'm super excited. I've never had an opportunity to have Jim Chanos, who you all know, or you should know, founder of Kinecos, here in the studio for a Real Conversation. There's so many things that I've always wanted to ask Jim, and I know that you have your questions too, so keep popping those in the queue. We can actually rate your questions now, so your questions only get to get asked if they have a high rating. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what that is. But thank you for taking the time. I, it's I great to be here. It. Awesome, man. Um, I was asking you, like I usually do, pre you know pre having this conversation. You know, can we talk about your process first? And then you sent me the syllabus at, at Yale that you now have. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Jim now has his own uh, class at Yale, which is super popular, if only because you take everyone to Peppy's and have some beer and pizza you know, for the real <laughs> stuff. Um, but but just wanted to put you know to get your your frame on that and your lens and and why you thought it was important to create the curriculum and what it is what it's all about essentially. Right. So so the class is now we're going on about ten years of teaching the class at Yale SOM and I teach it every other fall um, at the University of Wisconsin, which is my family's alma mater. And it, it's evolved over over time. But the idea when I first sat down with Rick Levin at Yale was uh, that. The thread of fraud is, is somewhat consistent in the financial world and business world, and business school students are taught to emulate success, yep. and rightly so. But as, as we know, we're, you're at, at most likely at some point in your career, whether you're in finance or in business or in nonprofit, um, going to be confronted with wrongdoing. And, and how do you recognize it? Uh, what do you do? You might not short an Enron, but it might hurt your career or your portfolio. Um, and so uh, what we've tried to do is set up a systematic uh, set of models mm -hmm. and then take a historical narrative starting with the, the first IPOs back in the 1680s where there was tons of fraud involved um, and move through the centuries and see just how, how fraud manifested itself in the financial markets. Um, how could you have identified it? How could we use models today to look at current situations? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, history uh, doesn't repeat, but as mm -hmm. someone said, it does rhyme. And it's amazingly consistent mm -hmm. how human behavior has been on the dark side, if you will, in some of these things. So uh, the course has, has morphed into um, uh, uh, something uh, pretty comprehensive over the 10 years. And, it's also a fun class to teach. Yeah, it's, it's amazingly comprehensive. Your reading list is fantastic. It's something that uh, I'm going to try to share with some people after we're done with this. But it's interesting that you you start with the, within the lens of history. I yeah. mean, it's you know if you're if if only you're applying your models post that, even if you were to apply like a fractal model, you're looking for similar sets. You're looking for similar patterns. Um, it started as a history class. Yeah, it started as a history yeah. class and, and, and technically. Um, and it is, a, it, we do use a historical narrative, but we do, because it's a, a business school class at, at both universities, we do apply uh, you know, systematic uh, modeling and, and try to fit the, the historical narrative where it fits and where it doesn't fit. Um, but it, human behavior hasn't changed that much over mm -hmm. the uh, 300 and some years. So that's what's interesting. When you look at uh, today's behaviors, I mean, we, we can call it fraud, we can call it uh, comparable behavior. Do, mm -hmm. you, do, you, do you think it's more probable that you'd find it in private markets uh, or public markets? Is private easier to f find your way around? Obviously with Theranos it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, well I mean obviously uh, one of the best things about the U.S. markets is, is the level of disclosure. And, and in private markets you don't have that level of disclosure. You, exactly. have, you have the world of NDAs and, and, and selective disclosure. Um, so we're not active in the private markets, although obviously we, we see what's going on in mm -hmm. the WeWorks of the world and, and the Theranoses of the world. Um, and, it, and I think that one of the reasons that companies are staying private longer is the capital markets have gotten deeper in the private markets. Mm -hmm. But I also have this nagging feeling that another reason is that some companies just don't want to be uh, put up to the scrutiny. Of, uh, of the public markets. I mean, it's similar to a topic I want to get into, which is the Chinese market. I mean, yep. at the end of the day, it's, I'd say 
it'd probably be an understatement to suggest that you might think it's rife with fraud or, 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 or bad behavior. The People's Republic of Madoff, as Jim Grant calls it. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, look, I mean, it, the Chinese market, we can get into it, has kind of, is kind of the worst of all worlds in terms of this uh, topic because you have opacity, you have the VIE structure mm -hmm. where you don't really own the assets uh, in the PRC if you're a Western investor and so on and so forth. And then for the large companies, you have the dominating aspect of the Chinese Communist Party, which is your partner, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Now, just before we go there, uh, let's park that for a second mm -hmm. and go back to how you tie it in. You take your course and you also tie it into what's happening in everyday life, like you know, right. monitorable behavior, things that you can measure and map. Students might see the pattern recognition. Right. How interesting is that for well, students? Well, so, so every, at the start of every semester, I usually pick a couple of topics that are somewhat timely and, and, and ask the students to stay abreast of, of developments in those yep. topics. So recent topics would be uh, Tesla, um, shockingly, uh, Bitcoin, China. Mm. Um, and, and so uh, during the course of uh, a few years ago, we were looking at the, uh, the uh, roll-ups in the drug industry. Um, and so I want them to sort of real-time keep in mind that this is what the course is about, right? Taking, taking this historical narrative and the models and applying it to, uh, to what we're seeing today in the financial world. Yeah, there's, and you have your models, and I don't want to, like, we're not going to dig into all of them, but, you know, the five different ways, I mean, by the time I got to the end of at least the intro to the, to the class, you know, you've effectively given people five different ways yep. to um, show that public companies, mm -hmm. you know, can, can, can engage in fraud. Like, right. The, the, yeah, there's a macro model. Um, uh, the, there's a, a micro model at the, at the, the corporate level. We have a, a governance model, um, uh, which uh, was popularized by Bill Black. Um, and uh, then we have Bethany McLean's legal fraud mm -hmm. concept. And then finally, we finish up with uh, The Seven Signs of Ethical Collapse by Marianne Jennings, which has a very handy checklist uh, of, of companies, uh, of attributes of companies that have found, been found to commit fraud. It's a, it's a very interesting um, a little checklist. That's a, and, and you have a checklist of great questions. I'm not going to ask you all of them, but I wanted to ask at least what I thought were the most appropriate three. Mm -hmm. um, what are the pressures, opportunities, and rationalizations of the fraud triangle? Right, so that, that, that's our micro model. So yep. basically the fraud triangle uh, says uh, what, it, what motivates you, um, what, is, what are the pressures, that's the P, what are the opportunities to, to, to commit fraud. Mm -hmm. So usually you have to be in the C-suite. You have to have usually a few people know, knowing what you're doing and co-opting them. And then unless you're a financial sociopath, and there are a few of those <laughs> out there, uh, the R is rationalization. Okay. So, so what pressure, opportunity, rationalization. So and and al almost all of our frauds at the corporate level fit into that model in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good framework. I mean, I think frameworks generally can help people, particularly in short selling, because we've been vilified. Um, you've certainly been vilified. I, I think I have more, more years to go with this Hedgeye platform. I get vilified every day with <laughs> legions of tweeters. Thank you for joining us, by the way. Um, but, you know, I often think of like this, because I'm a macro guy, mm -hmm. so I think, you know, how, how, how pro-cyclical is fraud? Yeah. And that's really a question that you, you know, do, do economic cycles actually impact fraud or the pace of fraud? Right. So, so on that and the macro model, uh, which is the Kindleberger-Minsky model, um, there we look at the macro environment, and, and what we found down through the historical narrative is that the fraud cycle follows the financial cycle with a lag. With a lag, really? With a lag. And, and, and often is amplified by bull markets in which disruptive technologies are the main factor. So um, what you'll see is that, uh, for example, the dot-com, we saw... Interestingly, much more idiosyncratic fraud after that bull market than previous or even the, the bull market immediately mm -hmm. after. Um, and so part of it is, is that people begin to suspend their sense of disbelief. Mm -hmm. And as the bull market goes on and more people are sucked in, you begin to believe things that aren't true and, and companies and or managements begin to proliferate that are happy to sell you stories that mm -hmm. aren't true. And so... Um, it's why most frauds are revealed after a market rolls over. Think about Madoff or others, because 
at their core, a lot of frauds are Ponzi schemes. And when people close up their pocketbooks and demand their money back, most frauds can't deliver. Mm -hmm. and, and so, it, it, and we've seen this down through the centuries, quite literally, the, the wrongdoing doesn't get exposed till af well after the peak. Um, same in the dot-com era, mm -hmm. we saw Enron and WorldCom and at, at, at the tail end of that uh, be revealed. Um, so I think that, that it'll be interesting to see in this bull market if that plays out similarly. But uh, it, it's, been a consistent, it's been a consistent macro uh, observation in, over the 300 yeah, years. Yeah, it, it makes pro-cyclical sense to me because you need a revenue slowdown to reveal, you know, whether you have revenue fraud, expense fraud, balance sheet fraud, you, you have to have that rate of change slowdown to reveal you some of the You also have easy credit creation. And that, easy credit creation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So every, and all that's pro-cyclical. Yep. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the banks will take their loan loss position, uh, provisions after the fact. Right. Companies will start to go down. Then you'll see the issues. And so I guess it makes sense. And yeah. you, all, you also tend to, to be much more suspicious after you've started losing money. Yeah. You pull up in the file again. <laughs> Wait a minute. Why are we in this? Yeah. And, and I've often said that, that stock prices are the very best defense counsels and prosecutors for fraud. Because when stock prices are going up, companies are bulletproof. Uh -huh. And it's not till they start going down that people begin looking closer, law enforcement, government gets involved, because there's political pressure for them to get involved. Yeah. I've lost a lot of money. It's not my fault. Mm -hmm. They defrauded me. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's the, be the beginning of the end of the bubble is what creates a bubble. It's a story and a chart. Yeah. And as now we have the story, the chart, and the machine, right. which perpetuates the upside of the chart because it becomes a momentum factor. Yep. Uh, and then when it comes down, I mean, these things have come unglued. They don't even have to be fraud. They just have to be what, what I call rate of change slowdown in a mm -hmm. growth story that has unlimited TAM, which I'm sure you love that, uh, that, that statement, <laughs> or the latest. Actually, and this is one I want to ask you about, which is not in your, your syllabus, which is secular growers. This is a bit of a bee in my bonnet, which is, of course, they're secular if they've never seen a cycle. Right. Yeah, so we're, by my definition, I'd say that we're super late cycle, so we're about to enter a happy place for long short as a strategy, but also short selling, because we're going to, it's got to be, I mean, it's got, I mean, you're already starting to see it, right? I mean, we're starting yeah. to see it, we're starting to finally see, you yeah. saw it, you nailed Grubhub, for example, recently. Yeah, um, there's, been, there's been some alpha in the last year and a half. Yeah, and especially in the last three months, which is kind of interesting, most feedback mm -hmm. I get because we have a lot of clients like you that are basically, hey man, you know, I don't care if the stock market's going to go up every day anymore. My shorts are actually starting to work. Yep. So that is also endemic to super late cycle is that they can't deliver the story any longer in revenue. Or Interestingly, or if you go back and look at our short only business, and that's only about 20% of our business, 80% is, is our hedge fund. Yep. Um, but if you just look, and, and, and of course the hedge fund is driven by the short side. So um, if you look at it historically, and again, no guarantees, but our alpha, interestingly, historically, tends to expand uh, before the market peaks. Mm -hmm. you know, so late 90s, 06, 07, mm -hmm. um, uh, 87, 88, 89, before the, the, the 90, 91 uh, bear market. And, and that's been an interesting observation that some of this stuff starts to falter some of the more questionable stories mm -hmm. as the market, as the indices power higher. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's also quite typical of super late cycle in a market. It gets narrower in terms of leadership because right. you start to drop out the companies that can't make it up any longer. Um, that, do you have any thoughts on, by the way, on software being a bubble or these TAM <laughs> stories? Like, do you, at that sector in particular, I, I haven't seen you talk about Yeah, that. we haven't, I mean, uh, because we've actually found Sadly, or, 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 or not, we've found companies being valued like that that aren't software. <laughs> Even better. So I mean, so I, I found sort of mundane businesses where suddenly they, they're deemed subscription businesses and they trade at 10 times revenue. So yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, obviously, software as a service can be an amazingly profitable yeah. thing if you truly scale. Um, it, it is, uh, and, and, and yet, and yet, when you look at companies like food, food delivery, Grubhub, mm -hmm. it's the furthest thing from this, but yet people lump it in on the up phase as some sort of magic TAM, you know, subscription story, digital story, disruption story, and in fact, it's just a body shop. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's where we've been trying to focus on companies that, that are being valued like these premier operating businesses, uh, but are in fact something quite different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'll give you a great example, uh, Zillow. All right, Zillow and Redfin have, have 
over the last 10 years moved a lot of retail real estate brokerage digitally and, and you know, successfully. Um, but that business is slowing. In, in Zillow's most recent quarter, their sort of core, what you would consider their core digital uh, premier brokerage business, I think was only up uh, uh, lower mid-single digits year over year. So w what is Zillow doing to sort of keep pe the growth story exciting because it trades at a big, huge multiple of revenues? House flipping, hmm. which is the ultimate non-scalable business, right? It, it's just they're buying houses for their own account and flipping them at a loss. Wonderful. And making it up on volume. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and yet it, the revenue growth now still looks great. It's a completely different business. Yeah, way lower margins. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing thing. I mean, on that stylistically, I get a lot of feedback. People think short selling is done by bad people, or it's done by only people who look for expensive stocks. Right. I mean, you. If I look at most of your work and particularly your biggest successes, it's been based to me on just one word: believability. You're just not willing to believe. You know, you know what management was saying relative to the numbers that you're looking at. Hopefully, but with evidence. Yep. Right. And and so. Uh, I think that, that that's where we try to at least make a difference. Something can look great, but if the business model is fraught with risk in, in things we see or that are not sustainable or are based on rent-seeking, and we can talk a little bit about one of the idea I think that you guys and I are on the same side on on that one, um, then we're interested. Mm -hmm. the, you know, what, I mentioned the drug companies, the roll-ups like Valiant uh, earlier, um, and, and there it was you know, the whole concept was we're going to buy drugs and raise prices because R&D is wasteful. It's much better to pay up for drugs you know are successful, which is great. The part they didn't tell you is the sellers weren't stupid and they were selling drugs that had very short lives, coming off patent. Mm -hmm. And and so um, the concept theoretically sounded good until you got to the execution. The market was far more efficient than, than the bulls uh, were led to believe. And so... At the end of the day, most of our shorts are, are business model shorts where there's something wrong with the business model. True fraud is very rare. Mm -hmm. does, uh, it, does it surprise you that so many, and again, our business, as you know, is loaded with people who went to the same school you and I went to. It's, it's not an intelligence problem. It's a gullibility problem. I, I think that, that, look, humans want to believe, and, 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 and we've had an amazing economy, and amazing financial markets in the U.S. We've been blessed. And, and so it's paid to be an optimist. Um, but the reality is on the micro, and this is why we're sort of long the market and short our companies, is that on the micro basis, lots of things fail. Mm -hmm. and, and that's good, that's capitalism. Mm -hmm. But um, even further on the, the scale there, lots of things fail for reasons that, that should be obvious to people but aren't. Yeah, I mean, it's and, a, and that's that's kind of the area we operate in. Yeah, because that, I mean, when you mentioned Valiant, I mean, I don't think anybody would ever accuse Ackman of being a, a non-intelligent person. No, but that's but that's being wrong on an epic order. Well, it's it's fascinating to me, and and it, it wasn't just Bill. The Valiant was the largest single hedge fund loss in history mm. in one stock. We well, a lot of people follow Bill too. I mean, he he's the one well, pushing it. And and, and I, again, I'm not I'm not. Uh, looking at anyone individually because there were lots of people that owned this thing that knew better um, because we and others concurrently were pointing out to them that, that the company was adding back, and this gets back to pro form earnings, which we talked about before the, the telecast, uh, are adding back things that were actually real economic expenses. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Valiant, it was the amortization of the purchased R&D. They were simply paying it up front by buying drugs as opposed to developing them. But then they told you that that related amortization was really not an expense. The fact of the matter was it was not only an expense, it was understated because they were writing it off over 10 to 11 years and the drugs had a life of about six or seven. Mm -hmm. And so um, the CEO of Valiant was a very persuasive guy who convinced the street for a couple of years that, that two plus two equaled five. And Wall Street has a long history of believing two plus two is five if uh, they think the, you know, they can make money off it. Do you think that it, it is ironic that the most popular um, class, or at least one of them, at Yale School of Management is your, is, is your class, and we still have what I'd call that business school mentality or, or gullibility of the real world? I think it's because I buy them beer and pizza. <laughs> That's got to be it. But you, you, you will often see, and the hardest thing for me to do, particularly with our young analysts, is to teach them not to believe what's in the management slide deck. 
yeah. not to believe the bullshit. You know, well, what I mean, so, it's a hard thing to do. So we have a concept both at the firm and at my class. And what I tell my students and my young analysts is, I want you to look at a company as if it was layers of an onion. And if we think about the core of the onion as SEC mandated disclosure or government documents, anything that you and I would consider a source document, mm -hmm. the next layer would be company press releases. The next layer would be management conference calls to answer questions mm -hmm. about the press releases. The next layer would be sell-side research <laughs> and then finally, the last layer is social media, rumors, trade desk chatter. Um, most investors invest from the outside going in. I love that. And, 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 and they never get to the core. And what I try to teach is start with the core, start with the source documents and work your way out. And it's amazing how the story changes if you, if you go two different ways. Um, in looking at a company, what they're forced to tell you, what the lawyers make them tell you or are worried about, you know, to make them tell you, uh, as opposed to then the first layer of spin, the second layer of spin, the Wall Street spin, and then social media or, or rumors uh, mill. And sometimes it's, it's like you're, you're analyzing two different companies. It's amazing. It truly yeah. is. I mean, we just had a, not to pick on software, but one of my analysts started pitching like they always do, a new idea. And, and, I, and where he starts is what mattered. And he said, well, in the S1, Keith, it's a 20-year-old company and they only shoot, showed two years of revenues, i.e. post-tax reform when revenues went up into the right. And it's a long-time long IT services company with a storytelling CEO. I'm like, okay, now I'm listening. Because yeah. we start with, yeah, start you know, with we the start with the financial documents. Start with uh, the documents yeah. and start with the risk factors, particularly if you can go back to an IPO or... Oh, and and, um, and and read it, yeah. read, and and because <laughs> they will tell they will tell you things that they're not going to tell you on the conference calls yeah. or in answers uh, uh, management answers to questions or sell side research for, yeah. by and large. Yeah, what percentage of you have actually read that own Tesla have read the K's and the Q's? You know, at a very basic level. Let's just be honest with that. Um, but on this, I mean. This onion, like when you think about it versus prior cycles, yeah. that outer layer of the onion, that media component, yeah. and particularly the old wall media component and the social component, yeah. has to be as, as, as loud as it's ever been. Well, what's interesting, Keith, is, is so uh, as a graybeard, we're starting our 35th year at, at Kinecos, and I was doing it for four or five years before. Um, the difficulty back then was getting the information. If you got the 10Q, a day before everybody yeah. else. You had an edge, right? <laughs> and, 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 and so I was taught to, to, to hustle to get source documents, all that good stuff. Um, but the, the problem was finding information. The problem today is exactly the opposite. It comes at you in a fire hose. And, and the real issue is understanding how much that information is, is really signal and how much is noise. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I can tell you that the most signal of your time, for, per, per hour of your time, will be source documents. Everything else you can fill in later. But because of this stuff just comes at us, you know, through a fire hose, mm -hmm. um, we lose sight of that a lot. Yeah, source documents, primary field research. This is essentially, I mean, your, your, your revelations on China, by the way, were, were early and right. I mean, that, that had to, how frustrating was that relative <laughs> to the to the received wisdom from the outer layer. It, it, well, it's funny because we, we get chided a lot, even today, about, you know, well, well, you said China would be in smoking ruins by now, you know, it's still going strong. <laughs> and meanwhile, China's been probably the best short you could have had for the last 10 years, because every other market has doubled and tripled, and China's been, been flat to down. Yeah. Uh, the FXI, when we started uh, looking at China, was I think 41, and I think it closed last night at 41. Um, and, and that was late 09, so it was 10 years ago. Um, but what really intrigued us about China was what we had seen in previous real estate bubbles. So one of our big calls in the late 80s at Kinecoast was the, the commercial real estate bubble in the U.S. All right. And the, the tax laws had changed. People hadn't figured out that the tax law had just put a torpedo into the ocean liner. And we're still building and still doing tax shelter deals. And, and then everything collapsed. Um, and then we looked at things like Japan in 1989. We looked at, at Ireland and Spain in 2007. And what stunned us was the size of the residential real estate market. And to this day, it still stuns us in China. 
it is the biggest real estate bubble in history, um, and still is ten years ten years into it. They are still building a 1.8 billion square meters a year of residential, which is 20 million apartments, because the average uh, Chinese apartment is 90 square meters, and. We've long gone past, well, build it and they will come and the rural people will move into, because these apartments aren't affordable for people who are moving from rural to urban. They are only being built at this point for speculation. And it is about, depending on how you want to figure out the ancillary real estate stuff, it's anywhere from 20 to 25% of their GDP. Mm -hmm. um, investment is still 45%, 46% of China's GDP. And resi real estate is about half of that. Mm -hmm. And it's stunning. I mean, I always joke, the world's most important single asset class is Chinese flat prices. I mean, it's uh, guys, if you can show slide 31 in the current macro deck where we, I, 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 I arguably anchor on this because I think it's what drove, you know, first of all, cat wouldn't be back to where it's gone to uh, if, if this didn't happen. But, you know, the Chinese stimulus... Well, this just didn't stay up. I mean, that's the amazing thing. It's amazing. Thing. Yeah, yeah. They, but, they're still building them. But this line is basically secondary industries I'm showing on this slide. Mm -hmm. Secondary industries in China, which would include all, everything that you basically just right. said, which is heavy construction, partly empty cities, empty apartments, the most cons you know, cement ever used in human history. Right. I mean, so if you just look at the rate of change of that line, what's interesting about that line to me, Jim, is that even if they're making up the numbers, the rate of change of that line... Yeah continues to slow, slow and down. slow and slow, despite easing base effects, which means that you should be showing some even cyclical acceleration here. Right. And the October numbers in China, fully loaded, even with uh, shadow financing, loans that they're reporting, are horrible. Right. They can't, if you're making up the numbers, make up less bad numbers. <laughs> so yeah. we've looked, the, the proxy for that is we try to get a check uh, because, again, the Chinese numbers, I always say it's bad apples to bad apples. So we try to look at rate yeah, okay. of change. And, and yep. Uh, but one of our checks there is also to, to, we monitor all the publicly traded banks in China and look at both asset growth and loan growth. Okay. Loan growth because it's loan growth, right? And then asset growth because all kinds of other shadow banking stuff usually in China ends up on banking balance sheets in one way, shape, form, or another. Receivables from other banks, uh, investment products. And so uh, we, try to, we try to look at, at that growth year over year. And... It was slowing, it's interesting. It got down in spring of a year ago, first quarter of 18. Mm -hmm. The year-over-year -year growth came all the way down to about nominal GDP in terms of the aggregates of all the banks. Got down to about 8, 9%, 7, 8, 9% year-over-year, which was, uh, was sort of nominal GDP. And these are nominal dollars. Uh, and that's when the deleveraging uh, they, they stopped the deleveraging talk. Mm -hmm. I think they were beginning to worry uh, that stall speed was going to hit. And this has happened a couple times now in the 10 years we've been following China. Uh, it happened in 2010-11 and then uh, 14 15, and then more recently. Um, and now it's running back up. The aggregates, I think, are running back up around 10, 11, 12 percent year over year, mm -hmm. which is sort of twice nominal GDP. Mm. Uh, I, I like to joke, when, when I started looking at, Hainan, at China, Hainan, which is the little tropical the resort island in the South China Sea, had one international airport. Um, shortly after uh, we started following China, they announced and have built a second international airport, and they're about to announce a third international <laughs> airport. The first one was essential. The second one is luxury. The third one, I think, is folly. Yeah, well, it's, you just keep building it, keep yeah. building it and building it. Well, it's the problem yeah. with any investment-driven economic model. I've often said, look, if, if, if half of your GDP is investment, you know what your GDP is going to be that year on January 1 mm -hmm. because you're going to set plans and you're going to, every time a building is finished, you're going to put up another one. Mm -hmm. But are you really building wealth in your country if you're doing it with credit, you're doing it on the back of your your people who uh, are saving the same, you know, you remember back from your macro class, you know, S equals I. Mm -hmm. and, and so they've got to save that much. And is your banking system really, you know, what you say it is because no one ever writes off a loan. Mm -hmm. And that's the real problem here. The debt's there. The assets don't earn a lot of money uh, and, uh, and, in fact, depreciate because they're so real estate-centric. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, no, like you've, you've said many times, I mean, no bubble or fraud is the same, but the patterns of behavior repeat. Yep. Uh, do you think, uh, last question on China, do you think that 
there are similarities to the early 90s and really you know, today for Japan versus now China. When I see the beginning of the slowdown from the secular peak, right. and I see everyone trying to defend it and now looking for a trade resolution, they're so short term about it. But if this is, is this the 1990s in Japan? So I, I give a talk a few times a year to Chinese bankers, um, usually up at, at Yale. And it's funny, they asked to hear the lecture. I, I don't know why. They must be masochists. But they're all, no, and they're, they're, they're lovely people. Yeah. And, and I, they've invited me back to, to People's Republic. But as my mother said, never go to a fight you're invited to. So uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've avoided that. Um, but, but consistently, lovely people. And, and I put up at the end of the, the lecture, and it's usually translated, um, at the end of the lecture, I, I put up, uh, uh, who am I? And I, I put up a, a state-driven uh, economic model, he heavily reliant on investment and real estate, um, protected currency, um, uh, exporting uh, a capital to uh, developing market countries as a way of diplomacy, um, uh, a managed exchange rate, uh, capital controls, blah, 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 blah. And the Chinese bankers always laugh, uh, I'm talking about China. And then I put up the last slide, which is the rising sun. I'm Japan of 1989. Oh, wow. And, and, and yeah. there are similar, quite a bit of similarities other than democratically elected government. A lot of the similarities are there. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at it, because even Japan back then had this state-directed kind of quasi-capitalist model where you had mini and midi and, and, and these big government agencies directing the, the large conglomerates. Um, and you had, uh, you know, a fiercely protected currency. You had uh, a real estate bubble. Um, I mean, it, it, the parallels many, are interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. It's a, and it's also like, so what tips it? And the same thing applies, I think. When do you see the most amount of frauds when it first starts to slow from a cycle peak? I mean, when Japan first started to slow, what happened? USA got in a tariff war with Japan. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing yeah, if you look true. at the two side by yeah, side. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's true. yeah. Um, on to the well. One guy likes to do business in China. Maybe he's going to just move uh, his, his his auto <laughs> operations there. He's already done part of that. Um, let's just. I'll just give you an opening volley on Tesla. Like, wh what's up with that? Well, the stock is. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> right back <laughs> so, to where it always yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, I, I, and I will say that that. Tesla is and remains one of our biggest and our best short positions. I, awesome. think, there was, I think there was some speculation on uh, social media about that yesterday. So for anybody watching, uh, we're still bears. Um, look, I, this stock has, has been in a trading range for about five years now. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I always try to tell people that at, at below 200, everybody thinks the company is about imminently to go bankrupt, including Elon. Uh, let, let's point out that, uh, <laughs> that uh, he, it, earlier in 2019, he talked about the company being in financial trouble, and then very famously in the spring of 18, he said they were weeks away from insolvency. So, you know, we're not making that up, right? Um, and, uh, and so, but I try to just point out to people that the company has had enough liquidity, even when the stock price was nosediving, that they probably weren't imminently going bankrupt, as a lot of people, a lot of bears on social media um, were prematurely spiking the ball. On the other hand, at 350 bucks, 360 bucks, and being taken out of 420, this company is an auto OEM, and it is trading at six to seven times where all the other auto OEMs, I, I posted something just a little while ago, uh, just showing just how much Tesla looks like the other auto OEMs Amazing. in terms of margin, margins, and, and except for valuation. And, and the rest of the auto OEMs globally trade in an amazingly tight band of, of 0.5 times total enterprise value to revenues. And, and it's been like that forever. It's why auto stocks really don't perform a lot because it's a capital intensive industry and you get a valuation of 50 cents on the dollar of every dollar capital you raise, right? It's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also uniquely both on a mean and median basis, um, auto, global auto OEMs trade at a little bit under five times enterprise value to, uh, to EBITDA. If you use both of those metrics, either or uh, and or, uh, with Tesla's numbers, you know, they have about $25 billion in revenues. They have about $15 billion in net debt, negative working capital, 
long-term liabilities and, and preferred minority interest. Um, they have, on a best basis, the best quarter times four, EBITDA of $3 billion, give or take. Uh, let, it's less than that on the latest 12-month base. All of those metrics, you run them through the global valuation for an auto company, and you get a stock price that is, interestingly, worthless. <laughs> it's zero. And, and so what you have with 350, the stock at 350, 360, is, is simply the market's view on all of the, the future brilliant products that are going to come out of here at amazing margins. Mm -hmm. Because they're just not doing it. I think trailing 12 months operating income, including sale of tax credits, is under $200 million at Tesla. Mm, it's terrible. Um, the company has raised equity and net debt $20 billion in its life. So it has taken $20 billion from investors to get you here. Mm -hmm. And there's no return on the business. Um, now, will there be a million robo-taxis next year? Well, there better be, right? I mean, we can talk about all these future products. Because on just the core business of making automobiles, um, this company is not worth anywhere close to the, the total enterprise value of 70 plus billion, whatever it is, and, and, and should be trading, of course, much, much lower. And so the problem, I think, with Tesla is that Tesla was correctly early in this. They made an amazing car with the Model S. I've always said that. The problem is, is the rest of the world was, was slow, but is catching up. Has caught up. And you now got Porsche with the Taycan, which is an amazing car, right? And, and, and increasingly now you're going to have very good manufacturers in that mid-price sector, which are going to be you know, right at the mile three. One of the most interesting things I think people ignored on the third quarter conference call, well, two interesting things that I want to highlight that are important for the future valuation of the company is that the company acknowledged that their Model 3 demand in North America is plateauing at 45,000 units a quarter. Mm -hmm. That's really important because you run that through their model of, of, of how many cars they sell globally of, of S, X, and 3, US versus the rest of the globe, you can start to, to get your arms around what the, the product profile looks like at best case. Um, number two, interestingly, they said that gross margins for the cars they're going to manufacture slash assemble in Shanghai are going to be no better than they are in Fremont. So why the hell are you doing it? Why, you know, what, what's the point, really, um, given the, the a massive capacity and production capability that's in China? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of head scratchers here. But I think the reality about Tesla is that it's about the stock, not the profitability of the company. Mm -hmm. And, and this CEO, as we know, is, is very promotional. And sometimes it works for him, and sometimes it works against him. And yep. that's what we've seen uh, for the past sort of four or five years. Yeah, promotional would be probably the kindest word <laughs> I thought that could come out of your mouth in, in describing him. And that's, that's very, I mean, that's well, gentlemanly. I, I, I want to also just point out, everybody sort of you know, talks about Elon and the, the bears. And, and everybody conveniently forgets that, that the bears are already 1-0 and o here, right? Uh, because yeah. a lot of us were short Solar City, which was going to zero. He took it off our hands at 20. Most of the shorts were short at multiples of 20. Um, and uh, he used Tesla shareholder money. Now, admittedly, non-conflicted uh, Tesla shareholders voted 80-some percent for the deal. So, you know... God bless. Mm -hmm. But that stock was headed to zero, and if you read the depositions in the Solar City lawsuit, you will see very clearly that the companies thought this thing was going to hit the wall. Mm -hmm. um, the bonds were yielding over 20% when they announced the deal. And so, um, you know, this is, uh, I, I will say that the bears can already say, you know, they've already won one um, mm -hmm. against, uh, against Mr. Musk. So we're in round two now. And, that, and round two is going to include round one, to be clear. It's not like this yeah, has gone there. away. Um, what, what, do, could there be a not-so-funny irony to him that that's actually what grabs him and, and, and takes him back under the rug from a from Well, there, a I mean, there's a lot of debt that came on because of Solar City connected to the, the, the solar panel leases. And the problem with the solar, the solar leasing model, and, and there's still some companies that trade publicly that still do this, is that... Um, you own the panels, right? It's an asset on your books, and, and the, the residents pay you a monthly uh, lease payment, but you've got to maintain them. And you've got to, and in many cases, 
one of the things we like to look for in companies is where the assets are actually liabilities. Mm -hmm. And in some of the cases of solar panel leases, I think that might be the case. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, there was a lot of debt, net debt taken on in the Solar City deal um, that I don't think is economic. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't economic when it comes to, to him. What do you think about the chiding of, of, of you and David Einhorn? Like we're talking about two of, I mean, you guys will get things right, you'll get things wrong. So does everybody else in this business. Yeah. But but talk about picking a, a punching partner. I mean, he's picking um, two of the sharpest minds that are that are left when it comes to actually starting with, like you said, starting with layer one of the onion. Yeah. Do you think that there's a, an irony in that? Yeah. Heard worse from better. Right. <laughs> but I'm just saying that. But that but, that. It comes with the territory. If you're if you're a bear, a short seller, and you're public on something, you're gonna you're, you're gonna get, get lots of arrows. I yeah. mean, that, I'm a big boy, um, and and so I've, I've been around this track a few times. <laughs> no pun intended. And, and uh, I got the scars to show it. And yeah, we're not right all the time. We know that. That's why we have a portfolio. Um, but one of the things that we do, and I know David does from time to time, is we show our work. Um, and we'll tell you if we are going to go public on an idea, and, and it's usually a small minority of our positions. Yeah. You know, but we'll, we'll let you know why, and we certainly let our clients know why, um, what our thought process is, mm -hmm. why we think that, that two plus two is not five, um, how it fits into valuation parameters, what are the risks. And, and look, if we're right, we're right. If we're not, we're not. But I, it, it, it's hopefully not for lack of work. No, no, the, the work part's interesting. I'm surprised I've not been, not, I'm a nobody, I guess that's why. But I mean, it, it's, we publish all of our work and it's, it's been accurate. I yeah. mean, in terms no, of, you know, Tesla demand tracking, Tesla used car pricing. I mean, all these things have happened. Yep. They're truths, you yeah. know? And so insurance, is the fact that- Insurance um, costs. I mean, it's not a, no irony either that we started with this short as, as a bad manufacturer. Yep. We didn't start with like a bad vision. Or a well, bad tan. What's fascinating, bad... one of the things we've noticed to that and right to that argument about, about this story is that people who are actual automotive analysts were the ones on the sell side, yeah. were the ones who were the most skeptical, yeah. right? Because they toured the plant and they, 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 <laughs> they, they detailed and, and they saw some of the stuff that the CEO was saying was just, you know, craziness, nonsense. Mm -hmm. And it was the solar analysts or the tech analysts or whatever who are still to this day, you know, consuming large amounts of the Kool-Aid. Uh, and, and I think that that's an interesting dichotomy. And yet, this is, and, and the thing I posted on uh, social media uh, a little while ago, this is very clearly a car company, an mm -hmm. auto OEM. It, it, it looks like an auto OEM, it, it talks like an auto OEM, and it walks like an auto OEM. What do your students say when um, you use this as a case study? <laughs> um, uh, so when I when I ask them to to, to keep an eye on Tesla for uh, <laughs> keep for an my, eye on keep it for my fraud class, um, uh, it's funny because uh, you know I, I'll say well let's this semester let's why don't we why don't we monitor uh, news at Tesla and maybe uh, a year ago I did Bitcoin uh, China's an evergreen kind of story, and I always among MBA students um, I always get this quizzical look when I say Tesla. Uh, would we be, why would we be monitoring that? And, uh, and then I get a quite different set of responses at the end of class from my students who have gone through the fraud models and whatever, and uh, they're asking me quite different questions. Like, why is this allowed to go on? Yeah, why is this guy in jail? Why is well, this guy I'll let you say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't hear that. I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. just I didn't say it. I heard it. Yeah, you, you never yeah. know what you're going to hear. You never know what you're going to get asked. Um, please fire your questions in the queue. I'm going to, I'm going to take uh, those momentarily. I want to ask Jim about one other idea that's f familiar to us, and that's just going through uh, DeVita. Oh, so yeah. It's a different, um, yeah. Di it's a totally different uh, industry, obviously. And, and, and a different story, but interestingly, um, so we talked a little bit about the drug companies. And DeVita, I, I, I gave this idea at Seeking Alpha, and of course, it, it, as always with Seeking Alpha, I'm down in a media 20-some percent on it, um, which always happens. Then <laughs> um, what's happened with Continental Resources uh, and, and a number of stories, uh, Caterpillar. Um, anyway. The story here is interesting in that the, there's, a, there's basically a duopoly of kidney dialysis in this country. But if you look and analyze the business of DeVita, which is a roll-up of, of kidney dialysis centers now mm -hmm. that, that's kind of stopped, um, they make all their money uh, from commercial insurers. Medicare, Medicaid 
pays fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year for for patients to do this, and most um, end stage renal disease patients sadly are, are either older or or poor and or poor, and qualify for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, the reason that, that they make all their money in commercial is they charge commercial insurers three to four times. And that's not supposition that David has actually put out materials in their investor decks yep. uh, that, that point this out. They're proud of it. And, 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 and well, they certainly didn't hide it. Yeah. Um, there was a recent Blue Cross Blue Shield lawsuit in Florida that, that walks you through how this all works. And the way it works um, and, and you can also glean it from reading the risk factors in their 10K, is um, if you come in and you're, you're a Medicare patient, um, they will try to steer you into a commercial policy. Hmm. And the commercial policy might cost you $10,000 a year as a senior as opposed to Medicare, which you're already getting. Well, why would you do that? Well, the service will be better. The, 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 uh, our premium uh, locations might be more convenient, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they'll then tell you that uh, the American Kidney Fund has a charitable assistance program that will pay much, if not all, of your premium. Lovely. Lovely. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it, they will then say that, that um, if you go see, uh, talk to them, see what, what will happen, um, they will then charge that insurer, if you sign up through an Obamacare exchange, for example, for $10,000, They'll charge that insurer $180,000 as opposed to 50 or 60. <laughs> you want to know who the two biggest donors to the American Kidney Fund are? Davida and Fresenius. Yeah. The two big players. Not by a little. I mean, I, no, no. I think our numbers said 130 million they gave them. Uh, they, they gave them, yeah, two. I think the AKF got 270 million in a recent year from both of them. So combined, so yeah, a big part of it. Well, think about think about if they're char if if they're giving that and that's going to the insurance premium. And then they're getting 20x on that uh, back. That's a couple billion dollars. Which, by the way, the EBITDA here is about 2.2 billion dollars. <laughs> by the way. Well, they've they've said that all their profitability comes from this. Right. So why is this? Why and why is this bad? Well, number one, I think it's insurance fraud. Number one, and 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 this this is why I was sort of stunned to see Berkshire Hathaway as the biggest shareholder in this. Also, not by a little. Not by I think 28 percent or something like yeah. that. Um, and, and it just shocks me that they would condone this by ownership, uh, being in the insurance business. Number two, their safe harbor, and this is the important part, the safe harbor they have from federal rules against this, uh, self-referral and so on and so forth, is that they cannot direct the charitable giving by the American Kidney Fund itself. Mm -hmm. In fact, they can give money, but then it's up to the American Kidney Fund to decide how they disperse charitable aid. Uh, the problem with that, and, and the reason we got really negative on this this, this summer, was that uh, there was an unsealed whistleblower suit from 2016. It was unsealed this summer, in which the whistleblower, who was a former American Kidney Fund uh, uh, employee who worked in the charitable giving section, oh, no. said that, in fact, Fresenius and DeVita were directing the aid. Mm -hmm. That is a huge deal. That is a smoking gun, if true because it now means that they may be running a follow the safe harbor. And my view on this is the company has been buying back stock aggressively. Um, they're leveraging up the balance sheet. As I think they want to pay out the value before it's gone, so to speak. The stock's back at 14, 15 times earnings. And what I would believe if I was an investor is I would not be putting a lot of multiple on this rent-seeking yeah. part of their business. It's going to go away, just like Akthar at Mallinckrodt, just like surprise billing at, at, at uh, the emergency room guys like Envision Health. I mean, slowly but surely, the government is getting to these rent-seeking anomalies because of Obamacare and, and, and structure. And I would think that this isn't going to be around in probably five or six years. I would be my bet. And then you have a company that's inherently unprofitable that is now getting levered. I think that leverage is now pushing close to, with the latest buybacks, we're going to have debt is going to be close to five or six times EBITDA. Mm. So, so this is becoming a really, really levered play on this. And it's going to increase the risk value. Um, uh, but it's still going on, to be fair. Uh, I do think, however, that, that uh, slowly but surely people are wising up. Uh, California just 
passed a law preventing charitable assistance for mm -hmm. dialysis. Yeah, so. And so, uh, so if we see you know a trend either at the state level, or or the feds moving in because of the lack of uh, the safe harbor anymore, Tavita's got a big problem. A big problem, a, yep. a real big problem. If Buffett decides that that's not what he should be, uh, well, and now it's as I say, now it's levered. So now you could see now you can see a path where the stock could go down a, a lot. lot. Yeah, as those, I mean, those are your uh, vintage Jim Chanos shorts. You have questions here that have uh, this this one, and, and by the way, your questions are being rated. So uh, of course, this is going to be the first question. If there are any from someone named Chanos, don't take them. <laughs> it says, Mr. Chanos, if Elon Musk was in the studio with right, you with you right now, what would you say to him? I would ask him uh, a lot of the questions I think that, that my good friend David Einhorn uh, uh, asked him. Um, we, uh, we, have been, we were puzzled both in the third quarter of last year and third quarter of this year of uh, uh, what looked to be supplier uh, changes and arrangements. In fact, in the 10Q of this uh, year's third quarter, um, they actually now put a table in for the first time and made reference of language of mm -hmm. agreements entered into at the end of the quarter. So clearly the lawyers at Tesla are worried about something that happened at the end of the third quarter where they put this into the notes. And I'd like to, to quantify how much did that impact the gross margins. That would be one thing. Uh, the second thing uh, I would like to talk to him about is um, why are all your executives leaving? I mean, it is kind of stunning to us that, that this company just can't keep senior executives. And why is it they, they get there and leave and they leave lavish stock option packages on the table, um, and, and really, what what possibly could they be seeing that you're not disclosing? Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's CFOs, chief accounting officers. Um, the I, guess, two I mean, guys. I guess I mean that's that's a talk about similar sets and patterns of behavior. That's not dissimilar from shorts you've made a lot of money on. You know, that kind of behavior. Well, when we see, I mean, so so a dead giveaway. When you see when you see stock sales, and by the way, senior executives and board members are selling. Uh, lots of stock through 10B5 plans at mm. Tesla. But when you see that coupled with executive departures, that's almost always a red flag. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I want to know. Um, and then I'd, I'd really want to ask him about these constant pronouncements of full self-driving, a million robo-taxis, you know, things that cross-country uh, trips by full self-driving cars, you know, the, 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 uh, the semi that was supposed to be out this year, it was announced two years ago. I mean, what's, why? Hmm. What, what, you know, what, what is to be gained by this if you just keep missing these, 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 uh, these great pronouncements? Well, you can pronounce anything, and, and as long as people in the moment are willing to believe it, you just got to hope they forgot that you said it. Um, this one's from Joe. I'd you know, love to hear in your career what's most similar to Tesla in terms of how it panned out. I think this is an interesting question. Are there, is there a similar setup where you get the story right, then it goes wrong, then it goes really right again? You know, <laughs> like, what, what is, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an important question. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think this one is kind of unique because it's been such a, a bull bear battleground for, for really four or five years now, yep. right? And, and, and it's under a lot of scrutiny. So it's become kind of a bellwether um, for, for, I think, for sentiment in the stock market, among other things. Uh, whether from retail investors or hedge fund investors, um, and we see it with the short interest numbers that go up and down too. Um, so I, I think this one's, kind of, this one's kind of unique in that that I've seen a lot of battleground stocks where you know one side or another has kind of figured out after five years, you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't working, and and this one isn't because. <laughs> It, it's 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 going up and down, and it's become sort of the, these monster moves, and yet and yet you know it's underperforming the market. Yeah. So the, that that's what the bears are also pointing out. You know, guys, this stock hasn't gone anywhere, and I think Nasdaq's up about eighty ninety percent during that period. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> the, um, so uh, every almost. It's an interesting prism through which you can sort of see your people's views on the market and views on on, on lots of things. Um, is how they view Tesla. It's um, you know, the point that, that you made on on happy accounting, though, too. I mean, like, isn't this a greater um, pattern that repeated back in 2000, 2001, when the biggest part of corporate credit was technology and telecom? Yeah. Today, that's the same thing. We have adjusted EBITDA as far as the eye could see. We have people willing to believe that triple Bs are going to trade like sovereign debt for as long as yeah. cash flows can never go negative. Yeah. The, the one, so I gave a talk at CIFRA last night. Um, 
about, about hiding in plain, plain sight um, uh, pro forma accounting in the post-truth age. And, and, <laughs> I love that and, title. And you know, people sort of ask us a lot, well, well, where are you seeing the excesses? You know, I get that a lot. And one of the, one of the areas is just the broad observation that a lot of this stuff is hiding in plain sight, Keith, in that it's uh, pro forma accounting uh, where the companies are just presenting the metrics increasingly in more outlandish ways to, to, to burnish their, their results. Um, and so uh, the, the biggest of which is probably the increasing amount of share-based compensation that now gets right. added back to pro forma earnings. And, and any way you cut it, that's an expense. Um, and so a lot of these companies now are, are and by the way, Tesla's, Two hundred million a quarter of that, a dollar <laughs> dollar plus a quarter is share based comp added back to their pro forma EPS, um, and so investors getting back to that onion uh, uh, that we talked about, where where if you looked at Valiant Pharmaceuticals in its heyday uh, in twenty fifteen, it was its pro forma cash EPS, which was the the press release number and the number the algos traded at and that hedge funds pointed to uh, was $11 to eleven fifty dollars in 2015. Um, <laughs> and what the debt traded they, they, on? Well, no, they actually lost gap, gap, they were losing money. Man. So think about that. And the stock got to two sixty. Ah. So, So that's what you'd call cognitive dissonance on a large scale. We're seeing this more and more. Take a look at a company like Salesforce.com. We're not short it. Uh, I, think, I want to short that. I think 70 to 75 percent of their pro forma two and a half bucks in earnings is share-based comp. Wow. Um, Lyft, which recently, uh, Lyft, which recently uh, got a rally going because it, it pulled forward its profitability forecast. We're going to be <laughs> profitable great. at the end of 2021, not 2022. If you read the fine print, it said before share-based comp. And so for share-based comp, you, that's a lever you, management can pull at will. They can just pay people more in stock and add that expense back. And now they say it, and the stock price, Lyft's case, actually went up. Yeah, yeah. So now you can sell your share-based comp whenever you get it at the end of the year at a higher it's price. It's an amazing perpetual motion machine. Wow. Until it isn't. Um, I don't know if you've done work on this one, and, and just pass if you haven't, obviously. But, Jim, can you please talk about Netflix content accounting? Have you looked at it in the under, underlying economics of how that's calculated? So we, we, we look at Netflix, as you, I know yep. you guys do. Uh, just a couple of observations and, and, uh, about Netflix. Netflix had an amazing, amazing um, proposition for people because when they became this new outlet for content, um, rather than video stores or cable, cable deals, um, the movie studios and the, and the cable networks basically said, oh, you know, Netflix is going to pay us. Fifty million a year for our library—that's just extra <laughs> money. Yeah, and, you know, and they built their—they built their model on the back of the Stars deal, where they just bought all this con amazing content for Stars for next to nothing, or, or, or leased it. And that was a really, really great idea to build this this behemoth on. The problem is, is that they are now becoming what they were disrupting ten years ago. Meaning that now increasingly they're a digital TV studio, movie studio, mm -hmm. uh, and and so they're financing content. I, I, I'm loath to say owned because a lot of it is just simply they actually have have first rights to it because they finance it. Um, they own actually a very small amount of what people think is the owned co content. Um, they have just basically a preference on it. Uh, my friend Michael Pactor keeps pointing that out, uh, but. But now they're in the business of creating hit shows. Now they're in the business of greenlighting movies uh, for $180 million. <laughs> and they're in the business of hits and misses. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a different business. Those multiples in that business are a fraction of the yeah. digital disruption model that they used to be. There's one other problem uh, that, that Netflix has that I think is underappreciated. And that is in their push to go global, which has got people excited. That's where the growth is. Um, they run into must-carry rules. And we're, I was talking to one of your analysts about this earlier. And that is, uh, if you're in Norway, you have to have so much Norwegian content. If you're in Turkey, so much of the content on the streaming has to be Turkish. And what that means is, is that your margins in these markets with must-carry rules are much, much lower. Because you can't just leverage your existing library. You have to buy in a bunch of new stuff. 
to, follow, to, to uh, not avoid breaking the law. And I think that, that if you analyze that and you allocate overhead correctly, I think that people who think that the international business someday will have the same contribution margins as the U.S. are smoking something. They yep. won't. There'll be much lower margin. So then you get into amortization, you get into real costs, the arms race on content costs, and you start looking at marginal returns on capital. And this business is changing kind of dramatically from what it was five and ten years ago. Um, and, and the question will be, can they raise prices? And that's where I think the new competition is going to make it tougher. Prior to that, I would have said, yes, they can raise prices, but they have to because mm -hmm. content costs are going up. So it's not because they want to, it, they have to. Now I think there's a higher probability they could get into a situation where they can't raise prices, and at least for the near term, content costs. Yeah, well. when your competition is Disney and Amazon, I mean, yeah. good luck with that. Well, and Disney in particular because they make content, that's their business, and, and then they have the existing library. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's now, now, now it's now a dogfight. I mean, <laughs> they had this to themselves, and you know, God bless, they built this business, right? They built their idea of streaming. But now it's a dogfight. I love when I ask like a guy that I'd consider the man like on the short side, like how to think about something, uh, a question about a company that I've never heard you talk about. But yeah. you know, clearly you've thought about that one. Um, maybe uh, last question, because yeah. selfishly this is the question I ask myself all the time. Uh, and now I, you, there's a way to short it. Um, is private equity a short? Well, sorry. So what I've a pro cyclical short at, so this, I, at this stage so of the cycle. There's a wonderful guy. There's a wonderful guy on Twitter, uh, Dan Rasmussen, uh, I think at Verdad Capital, um, who uh, gave a great talk at Jim Grant's conference uh, a few weeks back, and has put some stuff out there, uh, and has done far more work on private equity than I ever could do. I sit on though a number of investment committees, um, and so I, I see the pitches, I hear the pitches, and I see the results, um, and. I will tell you what's really interesting, and Dan's going into this, um, what's really interesting is that the returns in private equity are not what they should be, I'll be diplomatic, meaning they've been at or below public market returns now for a while, if you look at the, the, the industry, and everybody can cherry pick to the top quartile or whatever, yeah, of course. but in aggregate, private equity returns are kind of right around after fees, right around uh, the S&P and the Russell. And, and uh, Dan's work on this is fantastic, by the way. And so you begin to wonder if this isn't like hedge funds who really saw their glory days after the dot-com era because yep. they were short the junk and long value, and that worked, and that made your 10-year record through 05, 06, 07 look fantastic. And then everybody went over the cliff together in 08, 09, yeah. and hedge funds have had a hard time since. Um, I just wonder with the massive increase in valuations of equities, the massive decrease in rates, and, and the availability of capital, uh, why is private equity, given it's a portfolio of leveraged corporations, why is it not making 2x the market mm. for, for, for the risks you're taking right now? Mm -hmm. and, and the illiquidity and the fees. I just think that if you're just making sort of stock market returns, at this point, private equity, you gotta begin to ask yourself, well, if that's the case, I've roasted these poor long short guys for poor performance, correctly so, for, for creating no alpha, charging me huge fees, and then losing money when the market goes down anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, but why am I paying two and 20 to the private equity world if I'm long 3x my equity in corporate assets? Um, something's wrong there. Mm -hmm. I should be making multiples of the market. I'm not. And I think that, that that is the question I have for private equity, not do they improve the quality of the companies, are they laying off too many, I'll leave that to other people. But as an investor, I would look at it and say, am I getting the returns I, I am I'm getting commensurate to the risk I'm taking? And the fact of the matter is a lot of pension funds, whatever, love it because the returns have been steady, Yep. because a lot of, the, a lot of funds can mark their own positions over short periods of time, uh, and then f check a box. Oh, I can just count on the 10, 11, 12% on this one? Fine, done. Good. We'll, we'll allocate. But, and I don't know that they're thinking a whole lot behind that. Like, wait a minute. If I'm leveraging up, 
and I'm, I'm, these companies are taking on bonds and bank debt to buy corporate assets. What if there's a long period of rates going up and equity prices going down? Um, I don't think I'm going to get that equity rate return. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's, it's uh, like I'm I'm obviously not negative on private equity, you know, forever. But at this stage of the cycle, I mean, why would you want to be long leverage, cash flow degradation, and illiquidity? I just uh, you have a choice. And, and as we talked about, as you mentioned, uh, referenced earlier, uh, adjusted, adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> adjusted, adjusted. Yeah. Well, thank you um, for adjusting people's headset on this. I think. For a long time, I mean, everyone eventually in this business is going to be vilified from private equity to bankers to, to you and I, and, and and I think that like just giving you a chance to talk without commercials is like a was a, was a really good thing for a lot of people. So thanks for let's do it again readjusting how they how they probably thought about what you do. That's great. Thank uh, you. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Great. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.